everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today we're talking to Shannon McCauley, who is Associate Professor in the Departments of Physiology and Pharmacology and the Stitch Center for Healthy Aging and Alzheimer's Prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Shannon's lab studies central nervous system diseases and their mechanisms with an emphasis on Alzheimer's disease, at least right now. And some of her recent experimental work has been on the relationship between Alzheimer's disease pathology, meaning tau and amyloid beta production and accumulation, sleep patterns, type 2 diabetes in laboratory animals. She studies all that using a combination of biosensors, local field potentials, uh, microdialysis to track local concentrations of glucose, lactate, glutamate, insulin, A-beta and tau in the hippocampus over the sleep-wake cycle in old and young animals and ones with A-beta pathology and ones that don't and during hyper and hypoglycemia. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Sounds great. (laughs) So hi, Shannon. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. We also have our own Melanie Carlos, who has also got a research program on metabolic disorders in relationship to neurological diseases. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Charlie. And a PhD student in our department is working in Melanie's lab. Uchit Baskar. Hi, Uchit. Hi. So, Shannon, to get us started, we know that type 2 diabetes patients are much more likely to suffer from Alzheimer's disease, and this has implicated glucose metabolism in the etiology of the disease. But, of course, it's difficult to sort out cause and effect in the many dimensions of human disease. And uh, could you give us a little summary of the experimental approach you're using to identify what's cause and what's effect in the Changes in brain glucose, lactate, insulin, sleep aging, diet, <laughs> and Alzheimer's-like pathology in experimental animals. Sure. Yes, we try to study all of the factors. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so as you mentioned, in humans, it's very difficult to know uh, because um, most of these diseases are um, unbelievably co- um, complex to know what aspects of the d- these diseases are really driving pathology of another disease. And and this even gets more complex because as somebody who studies Alzheimer's disease, that typically um, when somebody comes to autopsy, you don't even see that all that they only have Alzheimer's disease in the brain. They have a lot of other types of dementia um, and other types of protein aggregations and things like that. So what mice allow us to do is really simplify the complexity of the diseases. So Alzheimer's disease is normally made up of um, neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques. And we have mouse models that either get plaques or they get tangles. So right then there, we can disambiguate um, whether uh, some of the metabolic changes that we want to know about are um, altering either a form of the disease or either arm of the disease differentially. And then similar with type 2 diabetes, it's a very, very complex disease. It certainly affects our metabolism, but it also affects our vasculature. Um, It affects our sleep. It affects um, pain levels. And so, again, if we start to isolate different aspects of that disease by looking how your blood sugar becomes elevated in type 2 diabetes or your insulin becomes um, dysregulated, we can then go back and look in our animal models that only get amyloid plaques or neurofibrillary tangles, how those things change. It seems to me another dimension of it is sort of blood levels of things versus brain levels of things. And so it's really important. Then they're, they're not always exactly the same. Sometimes no. they are very closely related. Right. Sometimes they're wildly right. unrelated. Right. And so your approach is to actually 
yeah, stick stuff into a, a particular right. part of the brain. Right. The hippocampus. Yeah, and so we, we've taken a, a combination approach. So for a long time, you, you can do this in humans, you can do it in, in different animal models, but you have the ability to do what's called um, glucose clamps, for example. And, and this way you can actually insert really small tubes or catheters into um, different veins and arteries. This allows you to infuse different substances. So we do, uh, you know, blood raise blood sugar with glucose or we raise insulin with insulin, or you can actually even deliver drugs this way. And why we do this, we combine this with another set of experiments where we can actually take uh, do in vivo microdialysis. And, and what that means is that we can take regions that are either either vulnerable or prone to pathology and stick a microdialysis probe in. And what it actually acts like is kind of like a little soaker hose that takes up all of the fluid from in between the cells of the brain or a specific brain region. And, and you can actually test different levels of metabolites, different levels of proteins, and see how they change in real time to whatever change in systemic metabolism or biology that we introduce um, into the animals. So unlike doing a treatment that lasts, you know, three, six, nine months in an animal, and then just looking at a very static time point at the end, our, our um, preparation allows us to look very dynamically about how things change in real time in different compartments. So thinking about what's happening from the neck down versus the neck up. Maybe this is a little nerdy, but I'm Wondering how many, I mean, is everything done with microdialysis all with one microdialysis unit so that you're just, you're pulling a bunch of fluid out and then you find glutamate, you find the glucose and the lactate yeah. and everything all from one sample? Yeah, so we have a, a variety of different approaches to, depending upon the question that we're asking. So microdialysis is, is kind of great because you just get that interstitial fluid out and then you can assay that fluid in a variety of different ways depending upon the question you have. So we have separate assays that we then take back into the lab and look at glucose, lactate, or whatever. Um, we also then have ELISAs where we can actually look at uh, very small changes in concentrations of amyloid beta or tau in the interstitial fluid. And then again, uh, you know, correlate it back to changes in metabolites. Um, the biggest limitation with this is that you have to collect the fluid at a really, really small flow rate. And so over the course of an hour, you only get um, 60 microliters, so a very, very small volume. So you really want to a priori decide what you want to, um, you know, to look at. Um, but then we have other ways that actually use biosensors, and those are specific to a specific a metabolite. And so we can implant those in the same way in the same region, but they actually use a change in voltage um, in an oxidative step to measure changes in um, glucose or lactate, but uh, each probe is specific to one analyte. But the thing that's good about that is that temporally, it's, it's a very quick reaction, so we can get um, better temporal resolution than we can with microdialysis, but you can't um, look at as many things as you can with microdialysis. And then these measurements can all be made in an animal that's walking around doing that's things. That's right, so yeah. And you can follow this same yes. animal through the day-night cycle, for that's example. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and so we also even have other techniques in our lab where we use small animal neuroimaging where um, we can actually, and this just gives us reads of, um, you know, cortical blood flow and hemodynamics, very similar to what people do with functional MRI. Um, and so we can look at, um, we know that when a certain part of the brain is firing, it, it, it recruits metabolites and things, recruits blood flow to that region. And we can actually look at oxy and deoxygenated um, hemoglobin as a metric of neuro 
neuronal activity. And so we, in, in those animals, we also train awake uh, because we don't want to have um, the animals anesthetized because uh, that interferes with the metabolism of the brain, as well as obviously the intrinsic, um, you know, basal firing and things like that. So maybe we could get a little bit of the results, uh, especially mm -hmm. regarding glucose and lactate yeah. and a beta. Yeah, so we started out by asking a very simple question with, um, you know, with, with type 2 diabetes. We knew that type 2 diabetes is, is kind of defined by this chronic increase in blood, blood sugar, blood glucose levels. We know that insulin levels typically rise and then fall as um, the pancreatic, the pancreas becomes taxed. And so we just wanted to ask the question of if you raise blood glucose levels or you raise blood insulin levels, do they change the levels of amyloid beta in the brain? And we know that within the brain is once you have that amyloid beta in that extracellular space, and if it's not cleared right away and the concentration increases, then it starts to aggregate and form those amyloid plaques, which is the hallmark of, Alzheimer's, hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. And so what we found is if you really increase blood sugar, then we increased A beta levels into the brain. And when we looked at this, it looked like it was done by making the neurons just more let, you know, ready to fire. In most of my talks, I include a picture of my, um, my daughter when she was eight years old and we gave her a, a bucket full of cupcakes. And if you've ever seen a kid like gobble up cupcakes and their eyes go wide and they run around in circles, in essence, that's what happens to your brain is that this sugar from your blood vessels gets into your brain. It freely diffuses and just makes your brain more excitable. When your brain's um, actually, when your neurons are firing, it makes more A-beta, too much A-beta aggregates, and then you can start to go down this Alzheimer's cascade. So how come every kid with a cupcake doesn't end up with Alzheimer's? Because kids are resilient and buffered. And because they'll go do that, they'll go run in circles and be bananas, right? And then, you know, um, and then actually uh, in that type of activity, whether it's exercise or any other factors, can actually increase A-beta clearance. So the aggregation of amyloid into, or A-beta into amyloid plaques is always the seesaw of whether you're producing too much. So we, we've shown that, you know, high levels, uh, high elevated uh, blood glucose can drive a beta production. But as long as you have an equal, you know, um, clearance of a beta, then you don't have aggregation. So in a young, healthy brain, you know, this can be a, you know, occur via sleep, right? You go to bed, you have this kind of bulk flow clearance mechanisms in play, and then you probably don't have aggregation. But as we get older and our vasculature doesn't work as well, we're not as active, we're more sedentary, we eat poorly, then you really tip um, increase probably the production, decrease clearance, and boom, you have aggregation. It sounds like that's the link to sleep. Yeah. Is this clearance mm -hmm. idea? Clearance and production. So if, when you're awake and your brain's firing under normal physiological conditions, you actually make a beta and you release a beta from the neurons. But again, like as long as things are, are, are moving properly, then you just clear it from that extracellular space. But then you have the added bonus of sleep. And so not only during sleep are you producing less because your neurons aren't firing as much, but you also have these other intrinsic mechanisms that clear a beta and just all a lot of different metabolites from the brain and proteins, either to the CSF or to the um, blood, and just this bulk flow process that happens. And if you disrupt sleep, you have less clearance, you're awake more, so you have more production, and again, it promotes a pro-aggregatory state. So is that it? For, I mean, that explains type 2 diabetes connection. You just have hyperglycemia and you make too much 
hey beta and maybe you don't sleep as much and so you don't clear it as well i think that there's a lot to do with that i do think that there's the story of of insulin and insulin resistance is one that's unbelievably complex and i think we're still working that out. But a big component of um, type 2 diabetes that people don't really, I think, fail to truly understand is the vascular component. Um, that, you know, when you have type 2 diabetes, you have a lot of vascular damage. And, uh, you know, and vascular impairment is a huge part of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and again, I had mentioned earlier that you kind of have these comorbidities of disease at, you know, when somebody comes to autopsy, where you're not just a pure Alzheimer's disease brain, but there's um, a, another form of dementia called vascular dementia that happens where hyperglycemia is really toxic for that. So I think that there's a bunch of mechanisms at play, but certainly a sedentary lifestyle, dysregulated metabolism, poor sleep can is all bad for the brain in general and specifically for Alzheimer's. Why do neurons release a beta? It's uh-huh. bad. Well, so it's not bad as long as it's cleared, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it, it's really the to this day we don't know what the function of a beta is, but we do know. So a beta is just a cleavage product, a byproduct of chopping up amyloid precursor protein, and that's a transmembrane protein that's actually found at the synapse that is great for synaptic plasticity and neurotransmission. So it's 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 hard to know whether a beta is just kind of a toxic metabolite that happens, and if there's just too much of it made, and we are living too long, and then it's aggregating or whether there's a specific function around a beta that's actually has something that we yet as a field don't fully understand um, but definitely APP has a very important function for synaptic homeostasis and synaptic plasticity does the so is it a one-way trip it's like the the glucose metabolism controls Alzheimer's disease so the direction of cause and effect is not complicated at all. I, it's, it's unbelievably complicated because, you know, so you can have the fact that if you're metabolically dysregulated, then that's going to either um, hasten the onset or, or move you through the, the Alzheimer's, the stages of Alzheimer's disease more quickly. But then there's also this piece is if you never have any metabolic problems whatsoever, the mere presence of, of amyloid pathology seems to cause a metabolic crisis in an individual. And so, you know, we found in our animal models that that's sufficient to produce almost a diabetes-like phenotype where the animals seem like they're insulin resistant. They're not responding to glucose um, properly. Their glucose levels are, are going higher. They're expending too much energy, they're, but they're eating less. It's a very complex metabolic phenotype, but that's independent of whether the animals ever had a poor diet in their life or type 2 diabetes. There's just something that um, is very metabolically challenging to have these protein aggregates in the brain that is you know, counterproductive to um, healthy aging. So you see that in experimental animals, but it seems uh, sort of mysterious how it would work. Yeah. How does the change in the brain alter the... So I think if you look at other fields, it's not so terribly mysterious. I just think it's, it hasn't gotten a lot of um, focus in Alzheimer's disease. Again, you know, I studied lysosomal storage diseases for a long time. These are rare pediatric disorders. And a lot of these d- disorders actually uh, present with a cachexic or a muscle-wasting phenotype. And the idea is there, you, you're missing, um, you can't break down things within your lysosomes. So you get lots of lysosomes. The lysosomes are huge and your cells almost have, it looks like a foamy cell appearance because your whole cytoplasm of a cell is just full of storage products that can't be broken down. 
Well, for that cell to, to survive, to make all of these new lysosomes and keep everything moving forward, it's just energetically demanding. So then almost the organism will just almost feed on itself excuse me, to, 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 for in a pro-survival pathway. And you I see this with, you know, across a variety of, of, of organisms um, or, or different forms of lysosomal storage diseases. The same thing can be said actually for um, cancer and HIV, where you hear the term cachexia or this wasting that happens. And it's because the disease processes are just a metabolically demanding process. Within the brain, you actually have not only these these aggregates, you have to form the aggregates, you have to maintain the health of, of pre-Madonna's like neurons, but a lot of the glia or other cells in the brain then take on a secondary responsibility. Instead of just helping to support a neuron, they have a pro-inflammatory component now, which is something that you know requires energy. So I think that if you look across diseases, you actually see that there's a metabolic tax to not being healthy that then, you know, makes um, when you do get a disease, um, you know, very poor outcomes. So the way you say it makes it sound sort of global, like if yeah. my hippocampus starts to get messed up, then my whole metabolism is going to be messed up. But there's a lot of very local metabolism right mm -hmm. around the neurons in the Mm -hmm. Hippocampus and a lot of what happens in Alzheimer's disease is sort of focused on particular regions in the brain. Mm -hmm. So is there a feedback mechanism between Alzheimer's pathology in the tissue and the things that control local metabolism in that same tissue? So I think, you know, it, so the short answer to that is yes. So there's a lot of work happening right now, again, using amyloid plaques, that what happens um, right around where a plaque forms is very different, even within, say, a hippocampus that's very vulnerable to disease or the cortex, that a lot of the activity or the metabolic demand comes where that plaque is formed. It comes back to how all the cells around that plaque respond to it. And that's really what causes this energy sink. But if you even go, I mean, a short distance, you know, like 50 microns, 100 microns within the same region, you have a much bigger or different picture from of the metabolic milieu than there. The issue is, is that's just with time as you get more pro-aggregatory events or more plaques form than that just takes over the hippocampus in general. But it obviously then has, um, you know, there's a lot of network disruption that happens in Alzheimer's disease. So the regions that are signaling to one another, um, you know, of these functional networks, that network connectivity, as we saw it, how connected those networks are, start to become um, disconnected. And so it then does have impact on other regions that are typically needed for proper brain function. So sorting out cause and effect isn't just a problem of humans. It's that there are many causes and many effects, and they mm -hmm. are only linked to each other loosely. And it makes it very hard, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. if you want to give a mechanistic explanation for something, you'd like to have a relatively small number of causes and a relatively small number. Oh, yeah, that's not happening in Alzheimer's disease. So I think the field <laughs> has actually been, you know, somewhat um, stalled, I think, with therapeutics because 
we keep looking at, for a long time it was amyloid and now it's amyloid and tau, but the fact of the matter is, is that the disease processes are affecting all cell types. It's affecting the brain, it's affecting the periphery. And so again, taking a play out of the, the cancer playbook where you have, you know, drug intervention, you have surgical intervention, you phenotype the tumor. So the, the type of approaches you have to treating the disease are based on precision medicine. That's the same type of thing I think that we need to do in Alzheimer's disease. We need to understand that this disorder is unbelievably heterogeneous and that people get Alzheimer's disease for very, very different reasons. They have different comorbidities. You know, again, if you have type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and Alzheimer's, then you better believe that the vasculature is going to be a big component of that, which might be different than if you have just an um, Alzheimer's disease brain. And so I think understanding what the shared mechanisms are, so again, that you can target those effectively and understanding that it's just going to be multimodal. There's many causes, many things. And, and I think personally, I try to look how all the things are associated and integrated together. And those commonalities might be something that's a more broad target than coming down to one mechanism alone. So speaking of that, I mean, even a beta, which at one time was thought to be the final common pathway for pathology, now that seems to be at least partly in question. I think what when the amyloid hypothesis first came out in the mid-90s, it was really thought that this was causal for disease. And I think that that story has been rewritten. It's not causal, but you know, at this current time, it is, Alzheimer's is diagnosed whether you, at autopsy, whether you have changes in amyloid, changes in tau, and neurodegeneration. That, that, that is the consensus. But whether those are just a response to other things happening and a biomarker of disease or actually the one thing that causes the memory impairment, the loss of an executive function, I think that's, we've, we've definitely moved away from that hardline approach to all of this. So if we're sort of thinking about how glucose metabolism alters a beta mm -hmm. and thinking of that as the causal chain to the a causal symptom. change <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very there's many. yeah there's many i would never say it's the causal change i just think it's one way to accelerate the onset and hasten the amyloid um because glucose Metabolism be working on other things as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so, for example, you know, if you have when you all have an insult within your brain, um, it doesn't matter if it's a traumatic brain injury, MS, you know, Alzheimer's disease. You have a glial response. You have microglia and astrocytes um, respond to that insult to try and you know kind of either quiet the brain down or if they get a little angry, they can become pro-inflammatory. Well, what we know from a, a lot of literature um, in the periphery is that the immune cells are highly glycolytic, right? So, so glucose can do one thing to the brain or to neurons, but it's gonna do something different to say the glial, the glia in order to have these dualistic functions to support, but also respond to stimuli, need energy. So, you know, so I don't think glucose is inherently bad. It's, it's this concept of everything in model moderation. And as you start to develop these pathologies associated with Alzheimer's disease, I think you just lose the metabolic flexibility necessary to maintain health and resilience. And that's, I think, more what happens. Um, and glucose is one way that this happens. Well, as an experimentalist, it almost seems like a minefield to me because there's, there's so many different things that you could be mm -hmm. viewing as causes mm -hmm. and so many different things that you could be viewing as effects. Mm -hmm. And then every cause could be altering every effect. That's right. 
And, uh, and so if you imagine this sort of graph of cause and effect, there's about a zillion things here and a zillion things here, and there's a line connecting everything to everything else. Yeah, but I think that's where you can start to understand, you know, we've, you know, shown that if you, or lots of people have shown that if you have disrupted sleep, it increases Alzheimer's-related pathology. If you have Alzheimer's-related pathology, it disrupts sleep. So that means that it seems pretty smart to either try to target sleep in order to actually reduce pathology or or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're, when you say target, though, you're thinking of a therapy, and I'm just thinking about experimentally figuring out what's going on. Yeah. And, and so that's those are two different things because because if you just find something that works, you don't have to worry too much about all the yeah. weird intricacies of cause and effect. But it, again, you can you can you know dissect it out, right? So it, you can ask the question: Does amyloid pathology disrupt sleep? So we ask that question. Yes, it does. We also know that if you sleep deprive an animal, it causes a beta levels in the interstitial fluid to to go up. So then that identifies you start to understand it is bidirectional and not unidirectional. That's powerful, right? Because then it's also the idea if we can, you know, with some of the recent um, triumphs of some of the anti-amyloid uh, 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 therapeutics, then you can be like, well, this might be some way to actually help restore sleep. So I think it, it, it's something that if you, if you just are, understand the limitations of what you're testing and the fact that they could be bi-directional and have other things impacting it, you can still get the answer that moves the field forward, right? And I think sometimes, I think the field in some regards for a while was a little too reductionist, just focusing on amyloid, and then it became tau. And, and But now I think there's more, there's a lot more that's going into understanding the complexity of it, which then hopefully will, will lead to more, a greater knowledge of the disease itself. So some of the things that you showed in your lecture today seemed like potentially uh, treatments that were interfering with some cause and effect relationship that you'd established. Like one of them was a insulin pectin yeah. drug. Um, well, so, so metformin was a yeah. drug. Yeah. So, um, that, that, and again, there's a lot of drugs out there. So you figure that within the human body, there's a lot of redundant systems, right? You know, it doesn't make sense for, for every system to just use one molecule that's not found everywhere else. And so there's this idea that if you have these common, um, you know, mechanisms, then if you're treat, if you develop a drug, say for cancer that impacts glucose metabolism or one for type two diabetes, then maybe that that could have a different impact. And so we found, we've gone through a lot of different diabetes drugs at this standpoint. Um, like metformin, it seems to rescue sleep because again, it, it, it restores glucose tolerance. It restores glucose homeostasis within the animal and that quiets down sleep impairment um, in, in mice. Um, but then we have others, you know, that um, if you look at the drug mechanism, we realize that there's another diabetic drug um, called uh, gliburide. It's a sulfonylurea that acts on KATP channels. Well, the KATP channels in your, in your pancreas are what secretes insulin, but excuse me, these channels are also found on the vasculature. And it seems um, in, um, in Alzheimer's disease, due to the amyloid plaques, the vasculature becomes unbelievably rigid and tight. You know, it should be elastic, it should pulse, it should flow. And so you get a, a phenomenon that's called arterial stiffness. And we find that if you target those KATP channels, they, you, it brings their ability to, um, to modulate excitability 
of the vasculature and into a dynamic range so they can dilate and they can constrict, which is what you need to pump flow. And when you do that, the brain gets happier because they get the goodies it needs. Then you don't have as much stress with this hyperexcitability and less plaques are made. So I think that there's a lot of ways that if you start to understand and dissect a mechanism, and then you can use a lot of these approaches to target that mechanism, then in combination of those, you might actually have something that could be beneficial. So these are ideas about how to actually treat Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. It's you always seemed to me that mechanisms. Alzheimer's disease field has always had a paucity of treatments. There was a lot of mm-hmm. ideas about causes, but almost no ideas about treatment. I think a lot of Alzheimer's patients had wished it was the other way around. Yeah. And that uh, <coughs> so it is, it's good to hear, what do you think are the prospects for treatment of yeah. Alzheimer's disease based on some of this stuff? Yeah, so I think one of the things I think that kind of stymied the field for a while is that there's there's a couple things. So first off, I think it's really been in the last five or ten years that we fully understood how the pathological changes with time happen in Alzheimer's and understand what we call the Alzheimer's disease continuum. And I think what's really come out, you know, and again, I would give it maybe the last five or 10 years, is that um, a lot of the changes we see happen so far before anybody shows up with any symptoms of Alzheimer's. And that's what makes this disease so unbelievably challenging, is it's 10, 15, 20 years before somebody has a memory complaint that there are amyloids starting to accumulate, and then later tau and those types of things. And so even when they were developing clinical trials, they were doing it after disease onset. But at that point, we know now that you really can't move, say, amyloid plaque burden, um, and you need to treat earlier. But because these are diseases of aging, because it takes a long time to change pathology, it's just a numbers game of, of time, right? I don't think any any company or whatever had gone at it um, ill-informed, per se. It's just we learn so much from each trial, and those trials take you know, with development, treatment and everything, you know, five, 10 years, you know, to get the answer that then informs the next trial. And so I think that unlike something like a cancer where you get, you know, um, you you get your answer within a month or, or with a very hard outcome, right? Um, it's just much different for Alzheimer's. But having said that, I think And since we've kind of reshaped how we think about the amyloid hypothesis, we also understand that if you're looking at cognitive changes, it's more related to tau, that we still don't know how amyloid and tau converge to make Alzheimer's, but there's a lot of thoughts on, you know, whether it's neuroinflammation or the vasculature. Now there's a lot of different people um, or companies and researchers looking at those other mechanisms and whether they could be um, um, targetable and helpful. The other thing that's come up, I think, that's really blossomed in the last five to 10 years is this idea of all the um, genome-wide association studies that have given um, genetic risk factors and, and really looking at a lot of those risk factors to see how that impacts pathology. So for example, with a lot of, almost all of the genetic risk factors are actually point to monocytes and microglia. Um, they're not actually on the neurons, right? So um, so now a lot of therapies are being directed towards that or other glia like astrocytes, APOE, um, which you know is the biggest genetic risk factor. Um, and and the idea that you know maybe that's something that we should go at and target. And, if, and, and the biggest pool of APOE is actually in the periphery. So, you know, 
know, can you target something peripheral to then help the brain? So I think by understanding a little bit more about the complexity, not ignoring the complexity of it all, but you're just getting a, 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 a more, you know, you're storming the castle from different um, areas in order to hopefully have an effect. But I do think that early trials with amyloid and amyloid antibodies really taught us a lot about the timing that you need to intervene. We also know now how to stage the diseases, all the tracers that could pick up amyloid and tau in the brain. I mean, they're 5, 10, 15 years old. They're, they're new. Uh, same thing with some of the assays that are looking. And, and the biomarker field that, um, is just blossoming to actually understand a little bit more what's actually changing. And I think coming forward from so many different points of view, like now that you have these GWAS studies, yeah. that can feed into this idea of the, you know, precision medicine. Like yeah. let's target, you know, which groups of individuals have these different genetic risks and then what pathways do they fall into and what's a good target, you yeah. know, treatment for Absolutely. them. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing is that as we move forward, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all, right? And if you have, say, really bad, you know, um, and amyloid within the brain, then maybe an antibody, an anti-amyloid um, antibody is not your, you know, not what you should, should lead with, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, as you said, like really trying to hone in on how to approach the disease more. On an individual basis. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yep. Also genetic markers have the advantage of being measurable at any time during mm-hmm. life. That's correct. You don't have to you wait can. until you're old. That's right. Yeah. And ultimately, hopefully, the idea is that you can begin to predict right. disease risk much earlier. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, is there something available that's that's not harmful that's right. that you can mm-hmm. start taking early on to try right. and prevent that risk? Or even lifestyle, uh, you know, modifiers. Yeah. And I think exercise that's, more sleep. That's right. <laughs> so I think, diet. right. Yeah. Like the Mediterranean diet, for instance, yes. which has been known to kind of reduce the risk for Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yep. Yeah, and I think today um, uh, the question was raised about the ketogenic diet, right? Um, and so there's there's a lot with, say, APOE that intrinsically it seems like your metabolism is a little bit different. And so what, what might work for an APOE4 carrier versus an APOE2 carrier might be very different. But again, if we get that information earlier, then knowing that there's actually literature out there that if you are APOE4 positive, which um, can increase your risk up to 12-fold, that if you maintain a healthy diet and exercise very consistently, that you can actually mitigate the genetic risk, right? So there's a lot of things that, you know, with sporadic Alzheimer's disease, you're not destined to get it, right? It's not the end stage of aging. There are things that you can do to minimize your risk. You might not make that risk go away, but it's something that you can focus on to try and mitigate. And it also doesn't have to come from a pill. It just has to, I think that's the hardest thing for people to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, And also it can't happen when you're already diagnosed. It has to happen, you know, in my age range, when you're middle age, right? It's really, you know, um, you hear a lot about the biology of aging, where as you're young, you build reserve. And then as you're aging, you use up your your um, reserve. And, and, and that discrepancy is, is what's called resilience, right? And so if you can maintain your reserve as your age, as you age, so that you don't deplete that reserve, then you'll have more resilience to this disease. Um, and I think that's something to very much consider, um, you know, as you approach middle age, you know. That sounds like Good advice. (laughs) (laughs) So so thank you very much, McConnelly and uh, Melanie and Richard for joining us today. 
And this is the last uh, podcast for the semester. We're going to go on Christmas break for a little while. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening to the podcast, don't think we've given up. We're still here, (laughs) but uh, we're going to be back in January. Mm -hmm. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.